in uh, a passage in John chapter 3 where Jesus has a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Uh, let me just say once again, if you've ever wondered who is Jesus, what's this Christianity thing all about, what's really at the core, at the center of it, then this is the passage for you. Listen attentively, please. Please. Because we get to hear a conversation that really strikes at the very heart of what human need is and what God has done about it. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 3 with me. Uh, or, and you can follow along as I read, either in your own Bible or screen above my head. John 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, the teacher of Israel, and that you, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except, the, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out of God. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for us. Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our heart would be pleasing to you, that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. Grass withers and the flower fades, but it's your word that stands forever. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me uh, start with a, a story, if you can just kind of imagine something with me. Imagine you're driving down the road in your you know, fairly new car. And you start to hear this squealing every time you put on the brakes. And if you're anything like me, you don't really know a whole lot about cars, so you're kind of wondering, 
Why is it making that wretched noise every time I try to put on the brakes? So, being the, you know, intelligent but not necessarily, you know, car-savvy person that you are, you decide to drive downtown into San Antonio, into the, to the, uh, to the Pearl District area, and you pull up there into the Culinary Institute of America, and you walk up to the counter and you say, hey, I've got a question. I need your most knowledgeable person here to help me with this question. And so out comes the head chef and says, how can I help you, sir? You say, well, I got this, this thing going on in my car, and like every time I put on the brakes, it's this really horrible squealing, almost kind of grinding sound, and it's just it's so hard to tell what's going on with it. I need some help. And he says, well, I mean, if you really want to make a good soup, you know, you start, you know, with your sauteing some, some onions, maybe some celery, some garlic, and you get it going really good there, so it's nice and soft on the pot, and then, you know, after a while, you're going to throw in some stock to kind of Glaze, you know, the pan there. You're gonna, you're gonna cook that. Throw the vegetables there for a little bit. And then my brakes, my brakes, they're squealing. They're making this terrible noise. My brakes in my car. And he says, "Well, you know, of course you're gonna want to let it cook for like three or four hours, and then you'll put in, you know, the chicken, maybe that sort of thing. You're gonna let it simmer. It's gonna be so sweet. Gonna make the whole house smell wonderful. And you finally throw up your arms. You're like, I don't know what's going on. We're missing each other." We're having two totally different conversations. You ever been in a conversation like that? Where it felt like you were just completely missing each other? I'm saying one thing, you're saying the other thing. It feels like we're having two completely separate conversations. Well, if that conversation is about breaks and soup, then not that big a deal. You'll probably find a mechanic at some point, and in the meantime, you've learned how to cook a nice soup. You can just kind of laugh that one off later. But what if the conversation is about the most important things of life? What if the content of the conversation is actually about the thing that strikes at the very heart of the deepest questions of human existence? At that point, you need to pay attention to that conversation. That's the kind of conversation that we actually hear between Jesus and Nicodemus. They are completely missing each other. It feels like they're talking in completely separate languages some of the time, and there's a reason for that. Is that Nicodemus is coming with some categories that just don't fit. And what Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus, you have a problem. And that problem can only be addressed one way. That's how we're actually going to look at the passage this morning. We're going to look at the problem that Jesus kind of unearths here for Nicodemus. And we'll, we'll dig pretty deep into that problem, and then we'll look at what the solution is that Jesus provides. The problem and the solution. So let's start with the problem. Well, let me read you these uh, verses one more time, verse 2, just so I can remind you how this conversation goes. Uh, Jesus, or Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, that's weird, right? Nicodemus comes and says, we know you're a teacher, right? We've seen these things that you do. We've heard about that thing that you did at that wedding in Cana, how you turned the water into wine. We've heard about how you turned over all the tables in the temple. We weren't so happy about that, but we heard about it. We've seen that you're collecting disciples. Something is going on, and I've got these categories 
that I want to see where do you fit in my categories. And Jesus answered him, unless you are born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. What? I wasn't even talking, I wasn't even thinking about that. I wasn't talking about that at all. What are you talking about, Jesus? But do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is by the response, by his very response, telling Nicodemus, listen, the categories that you're coming with, they aren't going to work. And all of these categories that you've got that you think you're going to squeeze me into, I'm not going to fit. Because here's the problem, Nicodemus, is that you have a deep problem and you don't even see it. You want to come to me, you come to me to ask me for illumination. Jesus, can you help me kind of shed a little light on this? We're not sure what to do with you. But what you need is regeneration. You need something much deeper, much bigger, much more important than you even think. Your problem is that you're dead and you need to be made alive again. Isn't that incredible how Jesus does that? In the turn in one little phrase, he unearths the deepest problem that this man Nicodemus has. He actually tells him, not only do you need to be born again, but you need to be born both of water and spirit. Now, what on earth does that mean? This is what he says here in verse 5. You need to be born of water and, uh, and spirit. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, what's going on there? What's water and spirit? Well, there's a few different interpretations, actually. The folks have kind of taken a few options for us. Maybe this is uh, simply Jesus' way of saying, you need both kind of a natural birth and a spiritual birth. Right? So there's born of water, that's the natural birth, and then you need to be born, though, also of the spirit, that's the spiritual birth, and the spiritual birth is better than the natural birth's birth. Maybe Jesus is even kind of attaching himself in some way to Gnostic thinking of the time. They would have said, spirit is better than physical, and will deny the physical in order to, to give way to the spirit. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, by the way. Or maybe there's option two, that water is, is baptism, water baptism, and being born of the Spirit is spirit baptism. As if there were two different ways of kind of experiencing salvation. That we are baptized and saved, but then at a later time, the Spirit actually comes and works in our hearts. Many Christians over time have thought that. There are two kind of separate classes of Christians. There's the regular Christians who've just been baptized, and then there's the special Christians who the Spirit is at work in. But the Bible actually contradicts that. Multiple times in the New Testament, Paul tells us that we are baptized into one Spirit, that belonging to Jesus is to receive His Spirit as well. There is no distinction between those who belong to Christ and those who have kind of assumed some sort of extra special baptism. So what's the answer then? What's our third option? Well, I think it's this, is that actually Jesus is talking about the same thing. Is that being baptized by water and spirit, being born of water and spirit, is actually talking both about regeneration, about new birth, about being born again. Jesus actually holds this in parallel with the way that he's talking about being born above, being born above, being born of water and spirit. Water and spirit is the same thing. It's actually two sides of the same coin. So when we look at kind of that concept of regeneration, we actually see it has two things that go with it. Water so oftentimes in the Bible is used as a symbol for cleansing. The same way that we use water. 
And God's people throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament were told, actually, through this symbol of water, that they needed to be cleansed. In fact, if you look at a passage like Ezekiel 36, the chapter right before the one that Chelsea read for us earlier, this is what it says. Listen to what God says to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You see how water and spirit there are held together? I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will call you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that to be born again is actually to be cleansed from sin, washed away, and to be given a new spirit and a new by God's Spirit. To be cleansed, forgiven of sin, and to be renewed by the power of God's Spirit. If you've ever heard that term, kind of born again, and you're not really sure what to do with it, that's what it means. It means to be cleansed from your sin, and to be born anew by God's Spirit. And what Jesus tells Nicodemus is the same thing that we all need to hear. Is that the real problem that we have in our lives is not kind of what human categories we get to put Jesus into. The real problem that we have in our lives is that we are dirty and we need to be cleansed. Is that our hearts are dead and they need to be enlightened. Is that we need God to do something for us. And I love the way that Nicodemus responds to that. He responds, you know, out of total ignorance. Uh, and I love it, mostly because it's probably the way I would respond in the same situation. And he says this, Jesus, how in the world is somebody going to be born again? How can you go back into your mother's womb and be born again? It just doesn't make any sense. And of course, Nicodemus is struggling kind of with the physical action of it, but there's actually something deeper, I think, that he's struggling with. You can kind of hear the question underneath that. Is, can you really change? Can someone actually really change? I mean, can somebody old and set in their ways and shaped by their culture can they actually change those ways? Can you really teach an old dog new tricks? Can someone who is in the throes of repetitive sin actually get out of that pattern? Can someone who has been downcast or abused or forgotten, can that person actually ever feel loved again? Can that person ever trust someone again? And somebody who is uh, used to the pattern of pleasing everybody around them and all that they do, ever turn away from that pleasing of mankind and actually desire to be God? Can people who are steeped deeply in their political system ever see the other side of things clearly? Can somebody who is uh, a, a working according to the pattern of the world and the culture in which they live ever see Jesus is? Can someone who's young and who's shaped by social media ever be able to be empathetic or relational? Can these things ever happen? Can we actually change? It's deeply at the heart, I think, what Nicodemus is struggling with. And what Jesus is revealing to you here is that not only do you have a problem that you don't see, but you have a desire that is unknown. 
But of course, Nicodemus' problem, and our problem along with him, doesn't stop there. Because the answer to our biggest problem is not something that we can go out and get on our own. In fact, Jesus tells Nicodemus this. Listen to what he says in verse 13 again. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, if you were here this fall and you remember our series in Daniel, maybe that, that phrase, Son of Man, rings a bell for you. In Daniel chapter 7, he has this vision of the Ancient of Days, God the Father sitting on his throne. And standing beside him is one who says, he's like a Son of Man. And that Son of Man is standing beside the throne and he is receiving honor and glory and worship and power and dominion. And he is there with God and in some way he is God. And what Jesus is saying here in taking that name for himself is he is saying, I am that one that Daniel prophesied. I am the Son of Man. But even more so, you can't come up to this throne that I'm standing beside on your own. The only one that actually can ascend is the one who's descended. There's only one who can go back and forth like this, and it's me. You can't come and find all of these answers and find this fulfillment and fill this biggest need that you have on your own by ascending to God through your activities. Someone must actually descend to you to bring you back. I grew up on the, on the Texas Gulf Coast. And as a kid, honestly, still now, even as an adult, um, for whatever reason, uh, one of the things that has always fascinated me is, is, a, is a ferry, right? That we would ride the ferry when we would go and see my great aunt have this house on Bolivar Peninsula, uh, just outside of, of Galveston. We would drive down to Galveston, and then we would get on the ferry that goes from Galveston to Bolivar Peninsula. And it's this boat that you drive your car onto. And then you stay in your car, and the boat just takes you across the water. I don't know why, but I just thought that was the coolest thing. Like, we're sitting in the car, and the wheels aren't moving, and we're going. It's crazy. And I love to get out and kind of walk around the ferry, and you see all these cars, and you're kind of out in the open air, and, you know, maybe you can see fish or dolphins, depending on where you are. It's just this cool experience of just traveling from one place to another on a boat that carries cars. And there's one thing that's really uh, interesting, though, I think about a ferry, and, and helpful for us to remember, is that if you've ever ridden one, you know that you oftentimes have to wait for it. You're sitting on one side, and you've actually got to wait for that boat to come back and get you. It's different than a bridge. A bridge is always there. You get to just drive across the bridge whenever you want to. But a ferry, you have to wait for it. It's got to come from the other side to take you pick you up and take you back. And that's what Jesus is saying here in Nicodemus and us. Is that that's who he is. Is that we have to actually be taken by Jesus to God. We can't get on our own. We can't ascend through our activity. We can't ascend through even uh, the, the, the way that we have things all structured in our head. We can't ascend through the way that we have all things all structured in our life. We can't ascend through our activity or our niceness, or how great of a father or mother we are, or how wonderful of a citizen we are, or how much money we gave to some nonprofit. What Jesus is saying is that there's only one way to the Father, and I've got to come to the That's what Jesus is. That's the problem that we share with Nicodemus. 
the problem that oftentimes we're just as blind to as he is. That we are without hope unless somebody comes and gets us. So there's our problem. And what's the answer? And of course, we get to now the answer, which is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It's not just for football games, right? On signs. But it's actually the best news that we've ever seen. And it's this wonderful verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, God's answer to our biggest problem is his love. God's answer to our biggest problem is his sacrifice. God's answer to our biggest problem is his activity, not ours. I love the way that one commentator kind of took this whole sentence apart. Let's put it up here. I want to read it together. I love the way that it makes sense here. He says, God, the greatest subject ever, so, to the greatest extent ever, loved the greatest affection ever, the world, the greatest object ever, that he gave his only son the greatest gift ever, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It is the greatest promise ever. God's answer to our biggest need, our biggest problem, is that he would pour himself out, that he would give, that he would love, that he would sacrifice, that he would do it for us, that he would take us on himself and put us literally on his back and take us with him. Now, Jesus actually explains this to Nicodemus. In fact, he explains it to Nicodemus in a way that probably made more sense to him than it does to us. He says, uh, he says, just as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up by Moses, the Son of Man must be lifted up. What in the world is he talking about there? Well, he's making an allusion, actually, to, to Numbers 21. God's people have, have left Egypt. He's taken them out with a mighty hand, right, with all these plagues on Egypt. He's brought them through the desert of Sinai. He's met with them uh, on Mount Sinai, and they have rebelled against him. They have complained. They have rebelled. They said, why can't we just go back to Egypt? Why can't we just be slaves again? Why do we have to wander around in this desert? And so the Lord, because of their, uh, because of their complaints, actually sent serpents, snakes, around into the camp. But when they repented, God did something amazing. Listen to Numbers 21 right here. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed to the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit it, if it bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. God's solution was to tell Moses to make something in the likeness of that same sin of those people, and to raise it up, and if they look to that thing, they will be saved. You hear what Jesus is saying here? He is saying, I am that serpent in the wilderness. I have actually been made not just like the thing, kind of 
that is your sin, but I have actually taken your sin upon me, upon myself. And I have been raised up now, and it's looking to me and to me only where you will find your salvation. That term raised up throughout the rest of the gospel accounts is pointing to one thing and one thing only, and it is the cross. Every time it is pointing to the cross with this underlying meaning also of not only being physically raised up on the cross, but raised up in glory in the way that God, Jesus himself, is glorified in his crucifixion. And what Jesus is saying is that I have taken on your sin, and I have been raised up to take on that sin in a way that you would have never imagined possible. And it is only in looking at me that you will find satisfaction and salvation. As Paul said it later, is that the one who is sinless has become sinful, has taken on sin for the many who are sinful. Jesus became our substitute. I have probably uh, told this story but like all good stories, it's important to you. If you've, uh, if you've ever seen the documentary uh, Planet Earth, there's this amazing uh, portion of Planet Earth where it goes, I think it's in the jungle episode, and it talks about this fungus, this, this, this crazy fungus that's this, um, it's like the fungus of death, is basically what it is. And it just kind of starts to take these places over, and it especially affects ants. And so what this fungus will do is it'll, it'll, it'll affect one ant in a colony. It will somehow kind of like bore its way into the ant's brain. And it will send messages to that ant to, to, to walk up to the highest tree and out onto this branch there in the forest. And that ant will walk up in the highest tree and it will there kill the ant. And the fungus will grow out of its head. I know this is super gross. The fungus will grow out of its head and the wind will come and blow and it will blow those fungal spores all over the forest, therefore infecting sin, right? Paul says in Romans 3 that that's really a lot like sin, that, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that we're all infected by something that we can't get away from. But what's incredible about this story is that actually when the colony understands what's happening, they will send one healthy ant in, and he will actually go and he'll pick up the infected ant, and he'll carry it down from the tree, and he will walk it out away from the colony as far as he can. And of course, that helped the end himself to die the process. But he will remove the sin from those things. That is what the Bible says Jesus has done for us. That he has taken our sin upon himself. That God's answer to our biggest need, our biggest problem, is that he would love us to the extent that he would die for us. That he would love us to the extent that he would take our need upon himself. Give us, wash us clean, and we put a new spirit, a new life, a new heart in us, and empower this place. How do you explain this? What do you do with such a great story? And we actually get a clue from this passage as well. We get it from verses 18 through 20. Let me just read those verses one more time. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe. Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be seen clearly that his works have been carried out to God. Friends, what is our response to this? Well, it's two words that we just heard. Believe and come into the light. It's like I'm into the exposing light of God's truth is actually the act of repentance. To let God actually expose who we are, even the dark places in our hearts that we'd really rather not go. To let him see those things so that we might come and fall on our knees before him so that he might wash us clean and forgive us. That's repentance. And then the other part is believe, faith, to cling tightly to the one who has taken on our sin for himself, to look to Jesus as he is raised up and glorified for us. Repentance and faith to the very heart of the Christian life. If you've never heard that before, this is a wonderful time to be able to hold on to that. If you've heard it a million times, hold on to it more tightly today. You know, we get a really cool uh, little glimpse of Nicodemus later in the Gospels. It's a great case study for us because it comes back around. Uh, in John 7, I believe, it's Nicodemus who, who speaks up when Jesus is uh, all the Sanhedrin, the people, the Pharisees, they're talking about, what do we do with Jesus? And the, the prevailing argument at the time is we should just cut him without trial. And it's Nicodemus who actually speaks up and says, don't do that. We shouldn't go after him if we haven't tried him. And then at the very end of the gospel, when Jesus has died, he has been killed without trial. He has been crucified. And they're going to carry his body away to bury it. Two people come to carry him away. One is Joseph of Arimathea, who has tomb that he's going to put him in. I guess he helps him. Nicodemus. This time not at night. This time in the middle of the day. Where everybody can see. Exposed by the light of the gospel. And healed by the cleansing and healing works of Jesus on the cross. That's Nicodemus. That's what we're called to as well. We pray with you. Father, what good news we get to proclaim today we have a real problem. It is good news that we can say that. And we can even have the ability to be honest with ourselves. That we don't have to hide. That we don't have to try to make up for it. That we don't have to try to overcome it on our own. But we can come to you and say that we have a problem because we also hear these wonderful words. That you so love Thank you, Lord, for giving us Jesus. Let's live in 